From APM Reports, this is Campaign 68. In this chapter, the Republican Party chooses its nominee, and a third-party candidate adds pressure to the race. American politics would never be the same. Our narrator is Stephen Smith. It is my privilege to place a nomination for the office of President of the United States, the one man whom history has so clearly thrust forward, the man for 1968, the Honorable Richard M. Nixon. August 7, 1968. The Republicans nominate former Vice President Richard Nixon as their presidential candidate. It's Nixon's second bid for the White House. In 1960, Nixon lost to Democrat John F. Kennedy by the tiniest margin in U.S. history. Over the following eight years, Nixon crossed the country campaigning for other Republicans. Historian Rick Perlstein, author of the book Nixonland, says all that time on the road gave Nixon a deep sense of what many voters yearned for in 1968. In a world that seemed to be falling apart, coming apart at the seams, chaos turning around every corner. Richard Nixon reestablished himself as a figure of destiny by speaking to people's craving for order, law and order, he called it. Over the course of the 1968 campaign, a lot of symbolism got packed into that phrase, law and order. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. This is his speech to the Republican National Convention in 1968, accepting their nomination. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. The non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. Note the rhetoric, the idea that the people who just kind of live by the established rules of society, you were silent and Richard Nixon was there to say no, You're right, you're the moral ones, and I'm the one to stand up for you. He would give them voice. They are black, they are white, they're native-born and foreign-born, they're young and they're old, they work in America's factories, they run America's businesses, they serve in government, they provide most of the soldiers who died to keep us free, they give drive to the spirit of America, they give lift to the American dream, They give steel to the backbone of America. They're good people. They're decent people. They work and they save and they pay their taxes and they care. Richard Nixon was offering himself as sort of America's white picket fence, you know, the way to enclose themselves within the safety of their own routines against a world that suddenly looked like it offered nothing that was safe. It was an extraordinarily compelling message, and one the Democrats at that point were completely unprepared to take advantage of. We had been so uh, absorbed in the peace issue. Ted Van Dyke was a campaign staffer for the Democratic candidate Hubert Humphrey. And in doing something about Vietnam and bringing the party back together and and bringing home the defecting uh, Kennedy-McCarthy voters, that we did not accurately gauge the extent of the alienation 
by more conservative uh, blue-collar, middle-minded voters who would flow away from the Democratic Party. In September 68, Nixon led Humphrey in the polls by more than 15 points, and Humphrey's campaign was starved for money. Nixon looked strong. Millions of Americans just like you all over the nation have grown tired of the leadership that the National Democrats and the National Republicans have provided in recent years. But there was a third candidate in the mix, an independent who threatened to steal votes from both Humphrey and Nixon. Governor George C. Wallace has a winning way with people. He goes to them and he gets with them. He talks a language that you and most Americans can understand. George Wallace was the former Democratic governor of Alabama. He was a longtime defender of racial segregation. Wallace promoted local control of public schools, which was a way of saying he opposed federal efforts to integrate the nation's classrooms. So if you want to waste your vote in November, you can vote Republican or Democratic because they don't think like you do, they don't think like I do, and not a single one of these parties has told you that they will turn back to you your domestic institutions, which includes the public school system of Houston, Texas. And when I become your president, we're going to turn back lock, stock, and barrel for the people of this city and this state the right to run your schools in and out of UC fit. Journalists and other politicians denounced Wallace as a demagogue. They said he used fear and prejudice to rally support. Wallace denied the charges. I want to say this about race tonight. Because each place that I go, I'm asked that question, and I think that this will suffice. I have never in my life made a statement or a speech that reflected upon anybody because of race, color, creed, religion, or national origin. And I don't intend to do so tonight. The trick Wallace used was to avoid making direct statements about race. Historian Dan Carter wrote a book about Wallace called The Politics of Rage. Carter says Wallace talked about race in a kind of political code that his audience clearly understood. So that, for example, he gets up and says, I don't care if a homeowner doesn't want to sell his home to a blue-eyed Japanese, uh, then that's perfectly all right with me. Well, everyone knows he's not really talking about a blue-eyed Japanese. He's talking about an African-American. But when people complain that it's racism, he can play the role of the innocent. I haven't even mentioned race, and yet you're accusing me of being a racist. So he he certainly wasn't the only politician who did this, but he was the first one to really master the technique, I think. Wallace used another wedge from the populist tool bag. He pitted white working-class people against big-shot establishment elites, intellectuals, and government bureaucrats. Yes, they've looked down their nose at you and me a long time. They've called us rednecks, the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, we're going to show Mr. Nixon and Mr. Humphrey that there's sure a lot of rednecks in this country. There was a lot of theater at a George Wallace campaign rally. The Wallace show attracted big crowds, and some of them were anti-Wallace demonstrators. When long-haired leftists started shouting at Wallace from out in the audience, he was ready. Let me say this much. Any of you anarchists in Georgia or California, wherever you happen to be, you better have your day now because after November 5th, you are through in this country, I get it? Unlike the modern candidates who will do anything to keep from having uh, hecklers in the audience, Wallace loved hecklers in the audience. Dan Carter says Wallace made sure hecklers did not get kicked out of his rallies so he could tangle with them. Long-haired hippies screaming and yelling, that's exactly the kind of opponent you want to have on television. 
The Wallace strategy worked. In September of 68, the polls showed him with 21% of the vote. Democrat Hubert Humphrey condemned Wallace as a racist. He also wrote off the majority of white Southern voters as unwinnable. Richard Nixon took a different tack. Nixon saw how Wallace appealed to the values of conservative Southern whites and began to woo those voters himself. It was a little tricky. You you had to be uh, careful at what you said. You couldn't overpitch to the Deep South because you weren't going to win it. Kevin Phillips is a political analyst who worked on Nixon's 1968 campaign. Overpitching the South would mean looking too divisive to the rest of the nation. Phillips said Nixon tried to peel away voters who thought Wallace was an extremist but still shared some of his views. Many of them were lifelong Democrats who felt that civil rights laws and social programs had gone too far in trying to end racial inequality. Well, my view, uh, stated bluntly, is there was some truth in what Wallace said. The liberals had gotten so carried away that it was self-defeating and that a more sophisticated statement of Part of what Wallace was saying was actually quite valid. Wallace's extremism allowed Nixon to say some of the same things without sounding off the rails. This, along with other campaign tactics, became known as Nixon's Southern strategy to win over Dixie Democrats alienated from their party. Historian Dan Carter. I mean, John Haldeman, who was um, one of Nixon's, of course, closest advisors, said the key always for us was to appeal to people's racial feelings without ever letting them even acknowledge to themselves that we were talking about race. And while there were many other issues, economic issues, I just don't see how you can look at the 68 campaign and not see race at the very center of it and at the center of this political transformation that's taking place. In the next chapter, Humphrey and Nixon go head-to-head, and a dark form of politicking takes hold. The idea was you intentionally find fault lines that get Americans angry at each other, hating each other, and that your side of the divide will be bigger, and then you win. This is Campaign 68 from APM Reports. To dig deeper into this history, please visit our website, apmreports.org slash 68. You can hear more speeches and campaign commercials and find a trove of photos and essays. And if you like this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe. Campaign 68 is a production of American Public Media. Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. I'm Kate Ellis. Thanks for listening.